It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. There is a level of hype and exuberance in conversations about artificial intelligence particularly in China and the United States today, that may be exaggerated relative to the actual capabilities and limitations of AI today. We often think when we're thinking about technology that it's a magic pixie dust that's going to... We've never seen anything like it before. It's going to change everything. AlphaGo was actually what you might call a Sputnik moment, or certainly at least a pivotal point for the PLA in their thinking about AI in future warfare but I think there are some sort of fundamental approaches the Chinese government has taken that are quite positive and that I wish the U.S. would recognize are, are also an element of our own history where we have benefited from in the past, but then there are clearly elements of what's happening as well that are fairly distortionary. It's incredibly important to actually have a level of cultural intelligence and understanding about what it is that's going on in, inside the head of, of respective billiard balls. G'day, welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Catherine Manstead, and this is the podcast that looks at national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by PolicyForum.net and the National Security College at the ANU. Now, in this episode, we're absolutely delighted to be joined by one of the brightest stars in the US national security firmament. It is Elsa Kanya, who is an adjunct fellow with the Center for a New American Securities Technology and National Security Program. She's also an expert in Chinese military modernization, information warfare and defense science and technology. And among many of her honors and appointments, my personal fave, she has been named an official mad scientist by the US Army uh, training and Doctrine Command. Elsa, g'day and welcome to the National Security Podcast. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here, but I'll warn you, I'm very jet-lagged, so we'll see how the conversation goes. <laughs> you might live up to the mad part of the mad scientist, Indeed. Monica. Indeed. I think mad analyst is more accurate, perhaps, but uh, either way, uh, I will try to be entertaining. Well, it's lovely to have you here, and and I wanted to start off on some pretty you know simple and easy topics, which is the nature of the US-China relationship today. Uh Clearly, there is some type of deterioration in the US-China relationship at the moment. And in the media, we see all sorts of labels applied to this, kind of a new strategic rivalry to maybe a technology war, even a new Cold War. What would you characterise, what term would you use to characterise the relationship between your country and China at the moment? So that is not an easy question, actually, but I will do my best. I would say we're seeing a course correction or recalibration in the direction of U.S.-China relations that perhaps is long overdue in, in a sense, insofar as we have seen a change in Beijing's behavior that has really, with the doubling down in certain policy directions that are deeply concerning from 
quite aggressive activities in, in the East and South China Seas, including the construction of artificial islands that are, have essentially become de facto military installations to directions in Chinese economic statecraft and industrial policies that have proven quite predatory, is the term often in use these days, but, but quite deeply damaging across the board to other countries' economies and innovation ecosystems, from IP theft to distortion and manipulation of markets with subsidies, and really aspiring to dominate next-generation industries in a way that can uh, be damaging to other competitors in this case, and not to mention, of course, the human rights abuses that have really reached levels that are appalling uh, from the situation in Xinjiang today that is almost unbelievable with, uh, by some estimates, over a million Uyghurs in concentration camps and levels of repression that are reaching new horrors from accounts of forced sterilizations in some cases to leveraging technologies like facial recognition to target Uyghurs individually. So I think if you look at the overall pattern of Beijing's behavior and ways in which certain trends that, can, that are have become more prominent under Xi Jinping, but can be traced back with some level of consistency to earlier generations of Chinese leadership. I think the, the change in U.S. policy has occurred in response to a growing realization and emerging consensus that there are reasons for concern about how China is behaving at an, as it emerges as a regional power with global ambitions and in, so, in some respects becoming more of a true superpower and peer rival to the United States. Just to so. pick up on those global ambitions, I think one theme that's dominated commentary on, on state relations and state competition, and from what you're saying, it sounds like we could say at a minimum there is a new normal of, of intensified competition um, in the US-China relationship. But there is a tendency or has been a tendency, particularly from realists, to think of states as big or small small or medium-sized billiard balls rolling around on a table. To what extent, though, and you've written a little bit about this, does a system of government, be that democracy or authoritarianism or or something else, change the nature of, of that competition? That's a great question. I think there is clearly an ideological dimension to US-China competition today. And I don't see this as... I think the Cold War was a very different state of affairs in many respects, but there are some commonalities and there's been quite intense debate over the extent to which China does have a coherent ideology that has appeal globally. Some scholars have do, don't see uh, Beijing's ambitions and ideology in that manner, but I do think increasingly it has become clear that the fact that the People's Republic of China, under the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party, is emerging as a nation with the power to reshape the world for better and for worse, uh, really does deeply influence the nature of this competition. I think, too, you've you've spoken about the way in which the Chinese Communist Party itself um, has certain interests. Uh, you, I think you call it the, the regime survival uh, security dilemma, has certain interests that a democracy and the leadership within a democracy does not. In your study of Chinese Communist Party um, political approaches and also um, the approaches of, of how they're organising militarily, um, what exactly are China's core interests and have they evolved of late? I mean, you said we can draw a line back, but looking forward, are those core interests 
uh, and ambitions in the region or globally changing a little bit. So I suppose you could say that the number one interest clearly is regime survival or political security and regime security, the ability of the CCP to continue and survive and sustain itself going forward. And then the way the Chinese government defines its core interests, as they're typically phrased, involves sovereignty, security, and development. And that may seem to be a simple phrasing, but increasingly there has been an evolution of how those categories of interests are being defined. So sovereignty, obviously Taiwan, and often fairly expansive territorial claims do fall under that rubric. But in some cases, when you think about how the Chinese government and Communist Party think about cyber sovereignty, then anything that violates uh, China's information security or any information that is seen seen as harm, harmful or damaging can be seen as an attack upon sovereignty in that sense, though that is a that may appear to be a rather convoluted interpretation from a democratic perspective because we don't necessarily think about information in the same way, but uh, Chinese notions of cybersecurity and cyber sovereignty do speak to this core concern that as Xi Jinping has often said and is often quoted as having ha- having said, without cybersecurity, there's no national security. And similarly, without cyber sovereignty, there's no ability to sustain national sovereignty, including sort of the again, regime security and ideological domination of that space. Then when you look at uh, China's notion of national security or state security, as my colleague Dr. Smith Hoffman has, has referred to it, there's often a very expansive definition of what security entails, including culture, again, ideology, political security, and dimensions of security that aren't necessarily within a typical framing of national security as, as we would tend to think about it. So I think there is an asymmetry in concepts of security that can result in a degree of Perhaps misunderstanding in in some cases as to what Beijing's sensitivities are and what they see as a threat to security. So, for instance, when those working with NGOs are accused of having harmed China's national security through their activities and activism, that seems to be, again, a tortuous understanding of national security. But that is in line with how Beijing sees sort of foreign threats or concerns over hostile foreign forces. So, again, when you look to what, what constitutes development to Beijing today and there's sort of the ability to sustain economic growth going forward insofar as a growing economy has become critical to the CCP's performance-based legitimacy. And then when you look at the ways in which China's China's uh, development interests are going global with One Belt, One Road and overseas economic interests and activities, increasingly the demands for China's development are not just uh, national or regional, but global in scope and scale when you look at the different economic projects and activities and the requirement for the PLA to defend them. So I think one thing I take from that is it's incredibly important to actually have a level of cultural intelligence and understanding about what it is that's going on inside the heat of of respective billiard balls. Um, And one thing I know, again, that you've spent a lot of time understanding is the competition that's emerging and the way in artificial intelligence and the way in which China in particular, but also Russia, others, and even the US now view strategic competition over artificial intelligence, the development and deployment thereof as being one of the strategic contests of this coming century. My question for you um, on artificial intelligence, and, and this is also something we have farmed from our Twitter following, so thank you for putting those questions in if you did submit one earlier, 
Is is AI the game changer, the strategic level game changer that we think it could be on the level of, I don't know, air or nuclear, air power or nuclear weapons? Are we over-egging this a little bit or or is it really going to completely change the nature of warfare and competition going forward? I suppose only time will tell, and there is a level of hype and exuberance in conversations about artificial intelligence, particularly in China and the United States today, that may be exaggerated relative to the actual capabilities and limitations of AI today. But nonetheless, it is clear that Chinese leaders at the level of Xi Jinping do see AI as a strategic technology that is critical to China's future economic development and military capabilities. And this is quite consistent across plans and policies and remarks from Xi Jinping urging the seizing of the strategic commanding heights as a to enable China to achieve the initiative in global scientific and technological competitions. So the rhetoric is very clear, and I think increasingly there's the reality of the plans, programs, and investments that the Chinese government at all levels, from the national to the local, is undertaking, seeking to leverage and harness the energy and dynamism of technology companies that are now being called China's national team in some cases and being called upon to support state priorities. So I think there are clearly a number of weaknesses that China is still confronting in what are often called key and core technologies, especially if you look at uh, sectors or industries like semiconductors, mm. still very acute problems well, does, does there. this also show up potentially the limitations of a state-led approach to um, industry sponsorship? Because China seems to have done quite well in 5G, for instance, but it's still lagging in the semiconductor industry, despite very clear rhetoric from uh, the CCP that this is a priority and despite a lot of investments. So do we run a risk, particularly from where you generally see in the US of copying China's state-led model of kind of going all in on particular technologies and putting the weight of the state behind it, uh, does that potentially lead to failures or distortions or even arms races over particular technologies that may or may not prove to uh, bear out their strategic promise with time? I'd say the track record of Chinese industrial policies has been very uneven over time with uh, apparent successes in some sectors, again, 5G being a prominent example these days, uh, despite clear failings in others. And I think that does speak to the fact that I've, the study of industrial policy as a phenomenon is still it still raises a lot of open questions. And in some respects, the policies that the Chinese government is undertaking that concern me the most are those that they've actually learned from, for instance, looking at the successes of the American model of innovation in the past <laughs> and sort of taking basic but really critical measures like increasing investment in basic research and supporting research and development for the long term, seeing uh, STEM education as a matter of strategic importance and, and, and prioritizing both educating and recruiting top talent in S&T. And some of these measures could be are sometimes uh, characterized along with industrial policy, but I think there are some sort of fundamental approaches the Chinese government is taking that are quite positive and that I wish the U.S. would recognize are, are also an element of our own history where we have benefited from in the past. But then there are clearly elements of what's happening as well that are fairly distortionary and subsidies and market manipulation and otherwise. So I think we should ideally, as, as democracies, I think the U.S. and Australia can look at models that have worked for ourselves in the past and see what we can learn from the approaches China's taking without 
without imitating or believing that the China model, quote-unquote, is actually superior. You mentioned there the importance of basic research, and one thing that strikes me over the debate at the moment about AI and other technologies, including 5G and quantum, is the extent to which there's pressure for uh, the US, Australia, Europe and others to start investing more in these technologies, supporting startups, getting the tech right. But, and this actually goes to an excellent question we had um, on, on Twitter from Chris from New Zealand, who tweets it at Innovate 8.1, does the US, and I'd also say the West in general, tend to focus too much on technology and innovation and not on how to operationalise that tech and innovation? Because to me, it's you know it's one thing to invent the tank. It's another thing to invent the doctrine of tank warfare or, or to, to be a rommel and effectively use that uh, equipment. How is the US doing on, on the capability implementation front? It is a work in progress, I would say. And again, as someone who studies the Chinese military more, I would defer to those who have more direct knowledge of how these efforts in the Pentagon and otherwise are progressing. But I would say that I think that is a fair critique that sometimes enthusiasm about innovation and about emerging technologies can can outstrip the reality of where those technologies are and the extent to which they can realistically enable near-term capabilities. But I think it is encouraging that the national defense strategy does include a focus on experimentation and implementation, including the development of new concepts of, of operations. So I think that the for any bureaucracy, it is inherently challenging to adapt or integrate new technologies from procurement to recruiting and retaining the right talent to make use of it. So it is encouraging in some cases that there are initiatives underway that seem to reflect a response to those underlying challenges. So for instance, the Air Force has launched a new AI incubator in partnership with MIT that is sort of looking to really build bridges between the military and academia and ways that can enable new directions in development and applications. And the Air Force has also launched a new a computer languages initiative to sort of treat machine languages like human languages in terms of identifying and rewarding those who have that have those skill sets. So I think looking at talent, ideas, and organizational adaptation are important directions of this. And across across multiple elements of the U.S. military and uh, throughout the Pentagon, I think there are various efforts underway aimed at dealing with precisely that challenge. And the Chinese military, of course, as well, has its own lines of effort in trying to deal with some of these same difficulties, including some that are rather duplicative or, Im- or Im- imitative of those the U.S. is undertaking. So, for instance, the, uh, the U.S.'s Defense Innovation Unit Experimental, now having since dropped the axe. <laughs> has been focused on trying to really reach out to and leverage commercial technologies. Now the uh, Central Military Commission, Science and Technology Commission, has launched their own uh, rapid response uh, small group for national defense science and te- technology innovation in Shenzhen, which has less of a cool moniker but seems to have the same basic idea of how do you access and leverage commercial technologies. The PLA Air Force has organized competitions for swarms of drones. The PLA Army has organized competitions for ground vehicles that are unmanned and increasingly autonomous and growing number of research partnerships and collaborations between Chinese military and civilian universities as well as industry. So it's sort of interesting to see the U.S. and Chinese militaries both in their own ways and sometimes in ways that are rather similar and in, in way that may not be entirely coincidental <laughs> trying to trying to deal with these challenges 
challenges of how do you start to move beyond technology towards innovation. And I think, it, for instance, it is significant when China's Academy of Military Science, which has been responsible for strategy and doctrine, just start to bring in scientists as opposed to just military strategists to think about how you integrate theoretical and technological innovation. So I think uh, a lot of this is a work in progress in many respects. And if there truly is a new AI RMA, so to speak, a revolution in military affairs catalyzed by artificial intelligence in conjunction with other emerging technologies, I think we, I doubt that anyone in the world today knows exactly what form that will take or how it will take shape as the technologies, capabilities, and concepts of operations do progress and may potentially diverge across different militaries trying to explore these ideas. You did mention, though, and I think this is really important to reflect on, that both the US military establishment and the Chinese military establishment are, at the end of the day, bureaucracies. And anyone who's worked in a bureaucracy, near a bureaucracy, or studied a bureaucracy knows that they face organisational challenges, challenges like duplication that you mentioned, uh, challenges around uh, fragmentation, stovepiping, and data management. And in my mind, one of the most important things, at least at this stage of the AI revolution, is managing, harvesting, collecting, safeguarding and securing data, which is the fundamental input to a lot of AI applications. Um, in terms of the Chinese military then from... Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. A study that you've done, what challenges and weaknesses does the PLA face in terms of managing and utilising data in an effective way? Quite a few, it seems, and I'd imagine. So I think, as you said, some of these challenges are inherent to any bureaucracy and themes and complaints that you hear from the U.S. military stakeholders as they're working to better manage their own data are sometimes echoed in Chinese military writings that complain, for instance, their officers and personnel don't always understand the value of data. They don't have practices in place to structure and formalize the collection and management of it. There can be a level of stovepiping across different services or or between the military, defense industry, and universities engaged in relevant research. And also great concerns over data security and the adoption of technologies like cloud computing that can enable more effective management. So I think that the Chinese military clearly does recognize that as, to paraphrase one uh, military researcher, data is the lifeblood of future intelligentized operations, and without data, you can't fight a war. I think there's a clear recognition of the importance of data and not only better managing its own data, but also having data to understand a potential adversary and to identify their weaknesses and identify favorable approaches to targeting and otherwise. But I think I'd imagine, and based on some of the common themes in Chinese military writings, it does does appear to be very much a work in progress and one where for all the rhetoric and for all the strategic thinking, the actual implementation of 
improving approaches to standardizing and managing data may be more challenging. There may be some some uh, sectors or applications where there's more progress than others. So, for instance, a lot of applications of machine learning to remote sensing, and as China launches more and more satellites and pursues global collaborations in space science under the umbrella of One Belt, One Road and otherwise, sort of access to data that can inform better improved situational awareness based on an expanding array of space systems and quite active attempts to better better manage that data through the intro- introduction of new algorithms and new techniques of machine vision and machine learning. These appear to be fairly promising and also focus on improving situational awareness in, for instance, the South China Sea and maritime domains where China is deeply concerned about asserting and contesting its territorial claims. So when you look, for instance, at Chinese developments in unmanned and autonomous undersea vehicles and even talk of an undersea-grade wall that may be under development, there are a lot, a lot of research focused on data fusion and how to, how to best integrate different sources of information to improve what, what we'd call maritime domain awareness. And in, in the South China Sea, for instance, there may be some interesting dividends that emerge when you look at the different sensors and assets and attempts to integrate among them that are that are underway. So I think I, presumably progress will be uneven and sometimes halting. But And I think the PLA as a bureaucracy and as an organization, I don't think will necessarily be any better at innovating than any other uh, of its kind. But I think there clearly is a high-level impetus and level of urgency from Xi Jinping himself in many cases about the importance of military innovation and of seizing upon what Chinese leaders and military leaders constantly highlight as a rare historic opportunity for China to sort of turn sharply to surpass or as a latecomer try to overtake the current leader, implicitly the U.S. military, which is often referred to as a powerful adversary. So I think the the sense of momentum behind some of these efforts could start to result in further dividends in the longer term. Let's fast forward a little bit into the future then. We're talking about, I mean, AI in itself is not really one particular technology. It's a it's a general purpose technology that can have lots of different deployments and applications across many different um, purposes, which you've illuminated a number of examples in what you've just been talking about. But as we move into even greater levels of sophistication with AI, there is a risk or indeed an opportunity, depending on which side of the, the fence you sit on, that the nature of warfare actually changes in some fundamental way, that decision-making ability speeds up such that humans no longer can keep pace with the sensing, decision-making and actions that are taken by artificially intelligent agents or algorithms um, during war. And you've written a little bit about a concept that a lot of Chinese strategists talk about called battlefield singularity. Can you unpack for us what that concept means and indeed how far away we are from a point of battlefield singularity. Sure. So Battlefield Singularity was the title of the report I put out in the fall of 2017, where I first started to look at the Chinese military's thinking on and advances in a range of applications of artificial intelligence. And this concept or phrase uh, echoes and is inspired by a number of themes in Chinese military writings that do, as as you said, highlighted this expectation that the tempo and complexity of operations is increasing so that it's inevitable that at a certain point, AI will take on a greater role in decision-making. 
changing the the involvement of humans in that capacity. And I think there's sometimes a tendency to frame this as having humans in the loop or on the loop or out of the loop. And I think it remains to be seen whether those concepts are workable or the best distinctions to make. But I think it is clear and, again, consistent in Chinese military writings, including from, fairly, from, including from strategists who are fairly authoritative, that there is great interest in the ways that AI could enhance command decision-making and whether through improving the integration of information in support of that decision-making or perhaps developing tactics and stratagems that humans can't envision and haven't imagined. And interestingly, uh, AlphaGo was actually what you might call a Sputnik moment or certainly at least a pivotal point for the PLA in their thinking about AI in future warfare, which is ironic in some respects, but also perhaps not entirely surprising given that Go could be considered at a very basic level a war game, though of course it's a quite a quite a significant difference from the game board to the actual battlefield, but there was certainly AlphaGo's defeat of Lee Sedol in the spring of 2016 and how that demonstrated AI in developing, ta- developing tactics and new moves that did garner a lot of attention among Chinese military strategists who actually convened seminars to think about what AlphaGo meant or the implications of those advances for future command decision-making. And there appear to be some lines of efforts underway in terms of research about how to better leverage AI and decision support. And some of this is not entirely new. And as I've pointed out in some of my work, I find it ironic and to some extent that some PLA thinkers and appear to be drawing inspiration from a DARPA program known as Deep Green of the mid-2000s that uh, hoped to develop a crystal ball of sorts and a sketch-and-decide option for commanders in the battlefield. And I think it'll be interesting to see where the PLA's attempts to better leverage AI, that is a range of techno- range of techniques and new algorithms in support of command and control, where those may go going forward and the extent to which they may run into the realities of the actual complexity of warfare, There's but not much fog and friction, when, d- despite how complicated Go is. I mean, Indeed. it's still a game. It is highly gamified. And AI applications work well when doing routine tasks or even complicated tasks in a game situation with rules that are defined and bounds. But it occurs to me that, that conflict and warfare is a little bit different to Indeed. a game of Go. And I think when Chinese military strategists or military scientists talk about AIs potentially lifting the fog of war or at least mitigating the fog of war, that could reflect a level of enthusiasm that reflects theoretical explorations of warfare that are di- that are divorced from the reality of actual combat experience. And I think that speaks to the fact that the PLA has not fought a war since 1979, since their conflict with Vietnam at the time. And there are some commanders... Which from memory didn't, didn't go so well, did it? No, it did not. But uh, memories can be burnished, I suppose. And there are some senior commanders who did have experiences in that conflict. So the PLA talks about warfare through this lens of military science as if you can look at it very scientifically and develop theories and concepts that are applied based on almost an intellectual exploration of warfare as an endeavor that I think may not actually always be concordant with those harder realities. So it's interesting as well that the U.S. military, for instance, had a lot of enthusiasm about the notion of a revolution in military affairs or RMA in the 90s, some of that enthusiasm or conviction that this was the sort of new direction of conflict did start to be tempered by, again, actual experiences on the battlefield that showed that technology can 
can solve some problems but creates other challenges or may enable better situational awareness but also introduces greater complexities. So the PLA is in an interesting position of what I would call learning without fighting. They're trying to learn as a military during peacetime, that is, undertaking what they call actual combat training or more sophisticated training, as well as a range of activities in wargaming, military operations research and simulations. And some of those may be a way to glean some lessons about what the future battlefield may look like, but there may be a degree of abstraction that, again, could result in these sometimes very excited notions of how AI will change the form and character of conflict, and that may actually, I think, eventually confront the reality that and AI as a technology is still limited. It still has a number of vulnerabilities that can be subject to exploitation. So I think that there are reasons to expect that AI could prove transformative, but it, it is equally likely to create new and new, new complexities that will create new problems for commanders. So I think what you've said there is a really important curative to this idea. We often think when we're thinking about technology that it's the magic pixie dust that's going to, we've never seen anything like it before, it's going to change everything. And if you look at the history of warfare and the history of conflict, it's really littered with examples of people getting very excited about new technologies, new doctrine, uh, and the more things change sometimes, the more uh, they stay the same. And to round out our conversation, I did want to reflect on something also that you've just brought up there, which is the importance of perception in all of this. So you mentioned the revolution of military affairs in the 1990s, which was very, very zeitgeisty, very hyped in a lot of quarters in America in the 1990s. And ironically, it was that hype that in some respects inspired the Chinese military to start thinking about technology and its ability to, to push China forward into the next, into the, into the future of warfare. And similarly, the third offset strategy in the US created anxiety in, in China that, oh, we need to really get, we need to double down on this technology investment um, piece. And similarly, the Sputnik moment that was the defeat of Go, uh, in some sense, you know, the, the victory of, of a game and advancement in, in a commercial sector of the world suddenly spurred so much, not just in the military in China, but in the commercial sector as well, to start really thinking about AI and this promise for the future, which all of that reflection brings me to a final question that we had from one of our um, Twitter followers, which is... In an era now where we're so focused on the AI arms race, winning in AI, he who controls AI will control the world, all of this rhetoric, how do we control or manage the escalation dynamic here? The sense that uh, fear about what potential adversaries or, or near-peer competitors are doing in the technological domain uh, might create in some way an arms race dynamic of of overinvestment or, or overfocus on on AI, or the indeed even rolling out unsafe AI systems before they're ready to uh, be released into the wild. What would be some of your recommendations for managing that dynamic? There are real risks there, and clearly there is a level of reactivity we've seen that reflects the intensity of the rivalry between U.S. and the U.S. and Chinese militaries. And for all the talk that we have entered a new era of great power rivalry, I'd say that there are some continuities and consistencies, given that, as you mentioned, a lot of these uh, trends in competitive military modernization do go back to the 1990s, and that the PLA has been concentrating for quite some time on developing capabilities to exploit American vulnerabilities or 
enable them to leverage certain asymmetries in their own style of war fighting. So I think, again, we've seen in the past couple of years the redoubling of this rivalry and particularly centering upon AI. I wouldn't call it an AI arms race, though that has become the prevalent rhetoric, unfortunately, and I think that's both misleading in some respects and problematic in others because AI is not a weapon. It's a general purpose technology that will be applied to a range of weapon systems. And calling it an arms race does create this mentality that it is sort of all about trying to advance military capabilities in this realm when I would actually argue that the the real impact of AI that could transform the U.S.-China a competition going forward could be economic, could be which, whether the American or Chinese economy better leverages artificial intelligence across a range of applications to sustain growth and promote greater dynamism and development. That could be the main determinant of the ultimate trajectory and outcome and a huge benefit competition and a huge benefit. Human so, populations as well. Absolutely. And there definitely so for all the talk of killer robots and all the alarm, I think there are a lot of reasons to think more positively about what AI could be and could mean. That being said, I think there are real risks given that not only the US and China, but multiple militaries worldwide are pursuing and developing and experimenting with and even increasingly deploying these capabilities. And I think there are risks that come into play when we think about crisis management in future scenarios or even concerns over inadvertent escalation that come when you're introducing complex technologies against the backdrop of a range of geopolitical flashpoints. So what happens if uh, a drone in the South China Sea is shot down or is, again, taken and expropriated? Uh, What happens if uh, a mistake in a simple algorithm used for machine translation or in support of intelligence results in a uh, misunderstanding that could make uh, friction more likely at a time of heightened tension? So I think that there are real risks that even speak to the very inherent uncertainty of what AI or what intelligentization in the Chinese military's parlance means for the future of military power. Because for all of this enthusiasm, it is hard to tell how AI will actually impact the military balance. And there's a lot of signaling and demonstration. So, for instance, the Chinese military and defense industry have made a point of showcasing their swarms. And I happen to notice the last time I was in the Beijing, last time I was in Beijing, the Chinese military museum had a depiction of a swarm combat system going up against an aircraft carrier. So, a lot of again signaling, demonstrations, even quite open coverage in official media, and claims of autonomous submarines under development and otherwise. And I think that there is. And that the very uncertainty about how do you measure capability, how do you evaluate which advances are truly impactful to the future operational environment, that can drive and exacerbate these risks of arms racing dynamics. And I think in terms of potential solutions, it is important. And honestly, a lot of the hope or focus of my research is to better understand the reality of what the Chinese military is saying and thinking and undertaking in their initiatives for military innovation, because I hope that an improved understanding is one way to try to lessen the risks of thinking in terms of worst case scenarios. As often Chinese military writings do acknowledge some of their weaknesses and shortcomings and challenges. And I think having a nuanced understanding is one approach. And I'd also add that ensuring 
that AI safety or surety and security is front and center, as well as a focus on ethics. And I think that the U.S. and Australia's democracies do have a chance to think about what are, how do we ensure that the development of AI occurs in accordance with their own values and that we place that front and center and, where appropriate, do try to engage with China and Russia in a manner that is pragmatic and constructive about how do we think about options for risk mitigation going forward, given that at the end of the day, Hopefully there is a shared uh, stake still in strategic stability and avoiding conflicts that could be devastating. So I hope that there – for all the risks, I hope there are also opportunities to think deeply and critically about these challenges and ways to, ways to ensure we move towards an AI-enabled future that is much more positive than dystopian. Well, thank you so much, Elsa, for that incredibly clear-eyed assessment, I think, of not just the hype – of AI and some of the the promise of it, but also an understanding of the realities of how we need to actually be thinking about operationalizing the technology or technologies of, of AI, and also understanding too that the makeup of any military has strengths and weaknesses. And I think sometimes we tend to overfocus on those strengths, which can lead us to be deterministic, can also lead us to make bad strategy because we don't actually understand what the pain points of a uh, of an adversary or a potential adversary might be. But also the optimistic tone um, that, that you ended on there, to me, is perhaps the most important take home, which is that we as democracies, even as citizens, still have a great role to play and indeed a responsibility to play in shaping both the future of the technology through ethics and through design principles and also in shaping the future of the world that we live in. And your um, highlight there that arguably at the end of the day, all nations still share an interest in strategic stability, to me is the kernel of hope that could open up more dialogue and more engagement and conversation on all of these issues. I hope so. And that's why I'm heading to Beijing next week. Week. And I suppose at the end of the day, I am a pessimistic optimist or an optimistic pessimist, depending on the, the depending on the day. Going to be a realist and split the difference between the between the two of those, not yes, in its international relations term, but yes, in its well, I'm a realist personal with contrarian constructivist <laughs> tendencies from time to time as well. So, uh, well, on that note, um, that is what I took away from the conversation. But you can join us, uh, our listeners, by Apps Policy Forum on Twitter, uh, and we have a Facebook group as well, the Policy Forum Pod, and also email if you want to be a bit old school uh, podcast at policyforum.net we'd love to hear what you thought of this pod and if you have suggestions for future pods future questions please do get in touch as well because we'd love to hear from you but now that's all we have time for on the national security podcast and we look forward to joining uh, you at some point in the near future 